Welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and with me today is you. Because as of this recording, at least, I am still alive and continue to exist. And if you are listening to this right now, I'm going to make the bold assertion that you too exist. So congratulations on that. It's even more impressive when you consider that, depending on how old you are, you have likely already survived several apocalypses. Even our youngest listeners were probably alive on August 23rd, 2013, a date which none other than Grigori Rasputin predicted that a great storm would come and burn away most of life on Earth. There wouldn't have been much to burn by then, though, since less than a year earlier on December 21st, 2012, a misinterpretation of the Mayan calendar led hundreds of thousands of people to believe that some interplanetary object would crash into the Earth, ending all life. A year and a half before that, the evangelical radio broadcaster Harold Camping had predicted the world would begin to end on May 21st, 2011. I remember that one because I was out that night with a friend at a pub drinking pints of beer and eating deep-fried pickles to prepare ourselves for the end times. The Japanese cult Om Shinrikyo, which attacked the Tokyo subway system with a deadly sarin gas attack in 1995, had predicted that there would be a nuclear war in the fall of 2003. And, of course, we can't forget the Great Millennium Panic of 1999, during which people bought large numbers of canned food and gas-powered generators to help them to survive the imminent disaster that would strike at the same time the Great Odometer rolled over from 99 to 00. The Amazing Criswell, a television psychic from the 1950s, snuck in ahead of that disaster by predicting the end of the world on the 18th of August, 1999. And Marshall Applewhite, of the Heaven's Gate organization, picked the 26th of March 1997 as his final of his many predicted doomsdays. And I could go on. I did a little research and discovered that I have lived through at least 53 apocalypses since my birth in 1975. That's well more than one a year. It's no wonder that my hair went gray so quickly. And of course, there were countless apocalypses before I was born, threatening even my potential existence with a fiery finale before it even began. Christopher Columbus put his money on 1658, while Martin Luther picked 1600. Obviously, spoiler alert here, none of these apocalypses ever came to pass, as you are probably aware if you have taken a glance at a newspaper lately. But it is such a common human experience to predict the end of the world that we have come up with a word to describe the study of apocalypses. That word is eschatology, coming from the Greek words for study of and last. And I thought that 2020 has had enough of an apocalyptic tone so far that it might be a good idea to dip into a little eschatology and look into a historical apocalypse to help us gain a little insight into why it seems we are always apparently just around the corner from the end of everything. Because ends of the world are useful in a few ways. Ordinarily, when we aren't in the middle of a global pandemic, I highly recommend end of the world parties, for example. An apocalypse party, when pulled off correctly, is an excellent way of spending an evening slash late night slash early morning slash late morning slash early afternoon. There's something about the imminent demise of everything that puts an energy into the air, a certain vibe that lends itself to an atmosphere conducive to solid partying. But more importantly, we can learn a lot about ourselves by examining the ends of the world that we predict. Ends of the world? End of the worlds. Ends of the worlds. Ends of the world that we predict. As always, we are defined to a large degree by the things that we fear and the things that we desire. 
And apocalypses are a fascinating mixture of those two emotions. Not to get all Freudian, although since Lee, who is firmly anti-Freudian, isn't here today, I would have free reign to do so. But Freud's claim in his 1920 work, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, that all of us have an unconscious drive towards death and destruction is probably one of Freud's assertions that I would argue still holds a little water today. The French even have a phrase for it, because of course they do, l'appel du vide, or, in English, the call of the void. By the way, if you have been feeling l'appel du vide yourself lately, I encourage you to reach out to friends or family and nourish your drive towards life and creation for a little while. But what happens when your death drive isn't just directed towards yourself, but to all of existence? What happens when you think that the void isn't just calling to you, but to all human life on Earth? That's when you start itching for Armageddon. And that's enough of an intro for me to start talking about the life and times and end times of a man named William Miller. Miller was born in 1782 in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, in the relatively new country of the United States of America. He was raised and educated in a Baptist home, and as a young man was considered a respectable citizen, being elected as a sheriff when he was in his late 20s, and then as a justice of the peace a few years after that. He joined the Vermont militia and was promoted to the rank of lieutenant again in his late 20s. It was also in his 20s that Miller, due in part to what he saw as contradictions and inaccuracies in the Bible, moved away from his Baptist beliefs and instead became a deist, which was a very popular position amongst many of the American founding fathers. The basic idea of deism is that there is some sort of supreme being, and that the best evidence for the existence of that being is the complexity and organization of the natural world. However, the deist god isn't a micromanager who pops in now and then to interfere with daily events and individual lives. It simply sets up the rules of the universe and allows them to play out from a distance. That means that deists tend to be extremely suspicious of claims about supernatural events such as miracles or revelation. Instead, deists prefer to gather knowledge through reason and the scientific method. One famous American deist was Thomas Jefferson, who went to the lengths of printing up his own version of the Bible with all references to miracles removed from the Gospels. In 1812, the Napoleonic Wars in Europe spilled out of their own continent and into what had now become North America, and Miller was promoted in the American military to the rank of captain as part of the unimaginatively and slightly inaccurately named War of 1812 between America and what would eventually become Canada. During the Battle of Plattsburgh in 1814, I told you that war was inaccurately named, a British shell landed near where Miller was standing. Three men were wounded and one more killed instantly, but Miller himself was unharmed. This event, along with the fact that the outnumbered and outgunned American forces were able to hold off the British attack, convinced Miller that his deistic views of an uninvolved supernatural being must be inaccurate, and that God had clearly been guiding the events of the battle. At this point, I want to briefly discuss the logic of this argument. While I've only ever been shot at a little bit, and so have no idea what it must have been like to have been shelled to this degree, I would like to point out that this situation and Miller's reaction to it is a possible example of something called survivorship bias. Basically, it works like this. The guy who was killed in the blast that Miller survived might have disagreed that the event was a miracle that demonstrated God was directly interfering with earthly affairs, but that guy was dead and so was therefore unable to comment. Survivors have more say in the interpretation of events, even when that leads to an inaccurate depiction of those events. Interestingly, uh, as an aside, a similar event happened over 100 years later to an American soldier named Rod Serling, who was in the Pacific Theater in World War II. 
Serling's platoon was resting after a fierce firefight when a supply box dropped from a passing airplane landed on Serling's friend, instantly decapitating him. Rather than seeing this as a miracle in which God decided that Serling should live and his friend should die, Serling saw the event as an example of the random and unpredictable nature of existence. Serling, of course, used that viewpoint of an absurd and uncaring world when he went on to be the main writer and producer of the classic 1960s TV show, The Twilight Zone. But Miller went the other direction and saw God's hand at work. After the war, Miller and his family moved to the community of Lowhampton in New York State. While he was still publicly a deist, he began to attend Baptist services again and turned his attention to the concepts of salvation and the afterlife. Combining the careful scientific approach he had picked up as a deist with the more supernatural understanding of the universe he had returned to, he went back to the Bible that he had earlier found to be full of contradictions in order to try to reconcile those confusing aspects of his faith. And it was during that careful re-examination of the Bible that Miller was struck in particular by the book of Daniel. To say that I am not a biblical scholar is a serious understatement, but it's important to go over the general themes in the book of Daniel in order to understand the revelation that William Miller was about to have. The book of Daniel is broken down into 12 sections. The first section sets up the setting and the main players. It takes place in Jerusalem around 600 BCE, but it was probably actually written around 165 BCE. The main characters are Daniel, his three friends, and King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, which was the empire that had control of Jerusalem in 600 BCE. The basic plot is that Daniel and his three friends are trying to hold on to the dietary rules of their Jewish religion even though it isn't the religion of Babylon. At first they get into trouble for this, but then the king of Babylon is impressed by their faith and rewards them by making them exalted royal advisors. In the second section, the king of Babylon has a dream. He asks his advisors, including Daniel, to interpret the dream, but he won't tell them about the dream, which is a bit of a jerk move. The king instead tells his advisors that they have to tell him what he dreamt about, or he will have them cut into little bits and he will then tear down their houses. Most of the advisors say, we can't do this. But Daniel tells the king that the king dreamt of a giant statue made of precious metals and materials, but it had feet of clay. In the king's dream, according to Daniel, the statue was struck by a giant rock and was destroyed. Daniel tells the king that this means that there will be four kingdoms, starting with Nebuchadnezzar's, that will rise and fall and then be replaced by God's kingdom, which will then last until the end of time. The king is very impressed and makes Daniel his head wise man. A bit of an aside here, already in this part of the story you can see the difficulties in biblical analysis. Here we have a story, translated from other ancient languages into English, about an interpretation of what someone believes a different person had a dream about. There are lots of layers here that require interpretation, and lots of places in which a misinterpretation could occur. The distortion could be in the story itself. It may or may not be recorded or translated accurately. But even if the story in the Bible is accurate, we're not sure if Daniel reported the dream accurately, and then we can't be sure if the analysis of that dream is accurate. If you were in a court of law, and the evidence was that you had heard a story about a person interpreting someone else's dream that they were never actually told about, that wouldn't be considered a particularly strong case. But of course, that's the difference between faith and other forms of belief. The idea that truth is something that is divinely revealed rather than observed or uncovered. But back to the story. In the third book, King Nebuchadnezzar builds a giant gold statue, and Daniel's friends refuse to bow to it. 
They are thrown into a fire, but since they aren't burned, the king is impressed and declares that from now on, anyone who says anything bad about the god that the three friends worship will be cut into little pieces and have their houses torn down, which was apparently a punishment that King Nebuchadnezzar was really into. In the fourth book, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream about a giant tree that gets cut down after a messenger comes down from heaven and orders the tree destroyed. Daniel interprets this dream as meaning that the tree represents Nebuchadnezzar himself, and that the tree being cut down means that Nebuchadnezzar will go bananas and eat grass for seven years, after which he will repent and become sane again. And this is exactly what ends up happening, but then after Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges the kingdom of God, he goes back to normal, gets his power, and is thrown back. In the fifth book, Nebuchadnezzar's son Belshazzar is now king of Babylon. He also asks Daniel to interpret a vision that he had, and Daniel tells him that it means that Belshazzar must humble himself before God. But Belshazzar doesn't listen, and gets assassinated later that same day, and gets replaced by King Darius. In the sixth book, King Darius is told by some of his advisors who are jealous of Daniel to pass a law saying that anyone who worships something other than the king will get thrown into a pit of lions. Daniel ignores the law, prays to his god, gets caught, and gets thrown into a pit of lions. But the lions leave him alone. So Darius is super impressed and has his other advisors, their wives, and their children thrown into the lion's dead instead, and they all get torn to shreds. The seventh book is a bit of a flashback in that it goes back in time to the time of Belshazzar again. This time, Daniel has a dream in which four giant monsters rose out of the sea. One was a lion with a human's brain that stood on two legs. One was a bear. One was a four-headed leopard with bird wings. One had iron teeth and ten horns. Then another horn grew out of that monster's head, knocking off three other horns, and that new horn had human eyes and a mouth and started bragging about how awesome it was. There was also an angel in Daniel's dream, so Daniel asked the angel what the dream was about in the dream, and the dream angel told him that it meant that there would be four kings that would rise up, and the fourth king would take control over the entire world. Then ten more kings would follow that king, then another king would show up and overthrow three of those kings, but then God will overpower that final king, and everyone will worship him. In the eighth book, Daniel has another dream. In this one, a giant sheep was running around wreaking havoc. Then a goat with a giant horn in the middle of its head showed up, attacking the sheep and breaking off the sheep's horns. Then the big horn on the goat broke off and was replaced by four other horns. Then out of one of those horns grew another horn, and then that horn became huge and started crushing everything in its path. In the dream, Miller heard someone ask, How long do we have to put up with this nonsense? And the answer was, 2300 evenings and mornings, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Then a dream angel explained to Daniel that the sheep represented the kings of Medea and Persia, the goat was the king of Greece, and the horns represented kingdoms, and that the entire dream was about the end of the world. The rest of the sections of the book of Daniel deal with Daniel having discussion with God about the future of the Israelites. So what is this story about? Of course, there are many ways to interpret it. Some scholars have argued that it is, uh, it's a story about history. It takes place in 600 BCE, and it's about what happened in 600 BCE. Others have argued that it takes place in 600 BCE, but it's actually about what was happening to the Jewish people in 165 BCE, being oppressed by the Syrian king Antiochus IV. Others have claimed that it is actually about events that have yet to happen. It, it isn't history, it's prophecy. And some people argue that all of these interpretations are accurate, and that history has sort of a rhyming pattern in which certain events and tropes occur again and again and again. 
but it's the eighth book in particular that catches the attention of William Miller. Using the interpretation that this story was prophecy rather than history, Miller paid particular attention to that 2300 evenings and mornings line. Obviously, by the time Miller was doing his Bible study, almost 90,000 evenings and mornings had passed since the time in which the story took place. But it was fairly common practice to take biblical mentions of days in prophecy and change them into years. This is called the day-year principle, and has been used by biblical scholars for over a thousand years, or I guess days in biblical prophecy. And although the King James Version of the Bible's use of the word cleansed is probably a mistranslation, Miller read that phrase as referring to the cleansing of the world through its fiery destruction, before which the decent Christians would get raptured up into the air to heaven. At the time, this was an unusual viewpoint in American religious thought, which had mostly moved towards the idea that the second coming of Jesus was more of a metaphorical event, representing the emergence of a God-fearing, socially responsible generation who would shape the world into a less sinful place. Miller, on the other hand, thought that the second coming was literal, and that the prophecy said that the world would literally end in 2300 years. But 2300 years from when? The time in which the story took place? That would mean that the world would have ended in 1700, which it didn't. Miller decided that the most appropriate moment to start counting the years from was neither of those dates, but instead from 457 BCE, which was the year that Artaxerxes of Persia decreed the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Therefore, adding 2300 years forward from 457 BCE meant that the world would end in around 1843, which for Miller was only about 20 years away. Miller started reading sermons at his local Baptist church at this point in his life, as he was a pretty good orator, but he hadn't yet published his views on the imminent cleansing of the earth, although according to his writings he was becoming increasingly uneasy about the fact that he knew the world was about to end and he wasn't telling people in time to give them a chance to repent and prepare. Finally, again according to Miller's written account, in 1831 he made a deal with God. If somebody asked him out of the clear blue to start preaching, he would see that as a sign from God. Apparently less than 30 minutes later Miller's nephew came by and asked Miller if he would be willing to sit in for the local minister who was going away for a few weeks. Miller saw this as a clear sign and started preaching to the congregation. His sermons went over well, and he soon received invitations to preach in nearby towns. By 1833, which was only about 10 years from the moment that Miller thought the world was going to end, Miller was regularly preaching in a number of towns, and had done a few speaking tours, and had published his views on the end of the world in a series of articles that had been published in a local newspaper. The Baptist Church, recognizing his popularity, ordained Miller as an officially licensed preacher. So now his views were becoming more widely spread, and they had received backing from an authority. This in turn allowed him more opportunities for speaking tours. He traveled back and forth across the northeast of the United States, spreading the good news about the imminent destruction of the world. By 1836, 42 other ministers had signed an endorsement of Miller and of his eschatological views. And Miller's number of converts kept increasing to the point that a word was coined to describe his many followers, the Millerites. One such Millerite was a man named Joshua Vaughn Himes. Himes was also a preacher, as well as a social reformer who had advocated for education, temperance, peace, and the elimination of the evil practice of human beings owning other human beings. It seems that the difficult work of trying to improve conditions on earth must have discouraged him, because Himes eventually really took to Miller's message of the imminent bathing of the world in fire. Hames had met Miller when Miller was preaching in New Hampshire and invited him to preach in Boston. 
More importantly, Himes had some experience in the field that would eventually become known as PR, public relations, and he got to work amplifying Miller's message through a pro-Miller newspaper titled The Sign of the Times, and shorter illustrated pamphlets that described and explained Miller's interpretation of the Book of Daniel. This relatively new communications medium spread Miller's message to a far greater degree than speaking engagements could ever have done in the age before amplification. Himes also conditioned the construction of the appropriately named Great Tent, which was at the time the largest tent in the United States, as a kind of traveling church. Some of these tent church meetings got a little wild as thousands of devout Millerites and hundreds of less devout, curious, drunken townspeople would converge and mingle. A few years later, as Miller was becoming one of the most well-known preachers in the country, Himes started up another New York-based newspaper called The Midnight Cry to reach even more eyes. Soon, over 40 Millerite publications were being published and distributed, although many of them had fairly short production runs. Uh, We even had our own Millerite paper here in Toronto called The Bridegroom's Herald. Millerite literature was being sent around the world, although it didn't really take root anywhere as strongly as it did in the United States. And eventually Miller's message would convince the owners of over 100,000 sets of American eyes to join the Millerite movement. When demand became too great for Miller himself to attend every meeting or sermon, other preachers took up the call. So Miller himself was no longer the only advocate of Millerism. This had two effects. One, there were more super-spreaders to pass along the Millerism message. And two, the content of the message started changing slightly as more preachers started putting their own spins and interpretations on Miller's initial work. Miller had been careful not to pick a specific day that the world would end. However, after getting pressure from his followers, who were understandably curious to know what the date would be, he narrowed Doomsday down to occurring between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844. Now, that year passed without the world being consumed in flames, but since Miller had always been honest about his hesitancy to declare a specific date, the Millerites were forgiving of this error and continued to wait expectantly for the upcoming end times. It was actually a Millerite preacher named Samuel Snow, not William Miller, who announced he had calculated the exact day, October 22nd, 1844. And since he made this announcement in August of 1844, that didn't leave much time before the end. On the 6th of October, Miller's PR man Himes put out a pamphlet with the headline, The End of the World, October 22nd, 1844, that was widely distributed and tens of thousands held their breath in anticipation of what was about to happen. Whenever there is a movement like this, inevitably the question is asked, what sort of person joined up with this group? With the number of Millerites so high, the answer must be all sorts of people. When dealing with numbers this large, sociology rather than psychology is often more helpful to our understanding. Rather than examining the individual psychological makeup of over 100,000 individuals, we can look at some of the social forces that would have been operating on and impacting the entire population during the time that Miller was preaching. As we mentioned earlier, Miller's PR man Joshua von Himes was involved with many of the social movements that were gaining energy in the 1840s. America had been built on the idea of the agency and sovereignty of the individual, but that idea had started out infected with the fatal flaws of sexism, classism, and racism, all of which limited dramatically who got to be considered an individual. Despite the hard work of reformers such as Himes, the vile industry of slavery continued in the American South. Women in 1840s America were still denied full personhood, so it should come as no surprise that many prominent Millerites were women. Why wouldn't a person who was left on the outside by the unfair rules of a crooked game want to see that game come to an end? 
social inequality was still rampant, and the technological and economic innovations that were emerging during the Industrial Revolution seemed to be accelerating some of those inequalities rather than minimizing them. Things were getting more unfair, not less unfair. The tremendous physical, intellectual, and social changes that were occurring would have left people with a sense of anomie, a kind of free-floating sensation that there were no more shared norms that would help tie society into a unified whole. In times of great change, people often feel as if there is no longer a place for them, and we desperately want to, we, we desperately need to, belong to something. With Millerism in general, and Miller in particular, becoming so popular and relevant, the mainstream media and religious leaders started engaging with the movement and its followers. And by engaging, I, I mean mocking. Newspapers in Boston and New York printed articles and editorials attacking Miller's ideas and making fun of Miller's followers. Here's an example from the Lowell, Massachusetts Courier. Mr. Miller has been holding forth on his narrow-minded humbug at Trenton to large audiences. This Miller does not appear to be a knave, but simply a fool, or more properly, a monomaniac. If the Almighty intended to give due notice of the world's destruction, he would not do it by sending a fat, illiterate old fellow to preach bad grammar and worse sense down in Jersey. However, rather than weakening the movement, these media and religious attacks convinced the Millerites that they must be on the correct path. As social reformer William Lloyd Garrison wrote in his anti-slavery newspaper The Liberator in 1843, The most conclusive argument that I have seen in favor of the soundness of Mr. Miller's theory is the bitterness with which it is assailed by a benighted and corrupt priesthood and the scoffs and jeers which it elicits from the profane rabble. Opposition from such sources usually affords strong corroborative proof of the excellence of the cause, or doctrine, which is held up to condemnation. Facing persecution by the mainstream press mirrored the persecution faced by Daniel and his friends in the Bible story, and so the Millerite beliefs became even more entrenched. This is actually a pretty common occurrence. When faced with mockery, people often tend to double down on their beliefs. I don't know if I've ever seen somebody mocked and ridiculed into changing their mind, although it's a tactic that people often try. The final doomsday date was rapidly approaching, and excitement was building for it. And as you would expect from a movement this large that contained so many different humans, that excitement manifested itself in a number of different ways. On the spiritual side, there was a massive outpouring of prophesizing, speaking in tongues, claimed miracles, faith healing, etc. On the economic side, people were giving away their possessions and properties and generously sharing amongst themselves what was needed in order to survive through those last few weeks. And on the physical side, there was some serious end-of-the-world whoopee going on, to the point that Miller's PR man Himes complained about how meetings of Millerites would often degenerate into fleshy and selfish passions. Which, if you think about it, is pretty much bound to happen if you have a room full of super excited people who have been up until then living in a fairly repressive and tedious society that they think is on the verge of collapsing forever. Many Millerites had to make difficult choices regarding their careers and livelihood. Even something as simple as harvesting your crops could be seen as a sign that your faith was wobbly, since why would you be gathering food for a winter that you were certain would never arrive? This was the dilemma faced by a Millerite named Leonard Hastings in New Hampshire. He had planted a field of potatoes that would help him and his family survive until the following spring, but since all of those potatoes were destined to be burned up in flames with the rest of the world, what was the point in harvesting them? Hastings ended up doing what many Millerites did, and just left the potatoes in the ground to rot. Millerite Ezekiel Hale was a fairly wealthy man and decided that it would be super awkward if Jesus showed up and saw that Hale owned all this land, so he decided to give it all away. 
One of Hale's sons, who was not a Millerite, was happy to take the land off of his father's hands. Meanwhile, a Millerite haberdasher in Rochester, New York, opened up his shop one day in October of 1844 and gave away all of his hats to whoever came by. In the last few weeks, Heim's printing presses were working 24 hours a day to pump out pamphlets and leaflets announcing the end times, and Millerites frantically used their last few moments on earth trying to win over their unconvinced loved ones, or even strangers, in order that they too would be saved from the fiery destruction that was about to unfold planet-wide. And then, the day arrived. And then the day passed. And then the day ended. And the world didn't. Later on, the date of October 22nd, 1844 would be known as the, the Great, Great Disappointment. Disappointment. And think about that for a moment. The day in history that is known as the Great Disappointment is a day famous for being a day that the world did not end. We'll come back to that idea. In the meantime, the Millerites were devastated. The sun rose on the morning of October 23rd on a world that was, for the most part, not on fire. We have several accounts written by some of the Millerites, and here's one of them from Hiram Edson. Our fondest hopes and expectations were blast, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I have never experienced before. We wept and wept till the day dawn. As you would expect, the media weren't kind and indulged in a few weeks of I told you so with editorials and cartoons making fun of Miller and his followers. Not content with rubbing their noses in the failed prediction, false stories were circulated that made the Millerites look even sillier. For example, it was reported, without any evidence, that Miller's followers had worn white gowns and stood on the roofs of their barns to await the end. Here's a typical newspaper story from the aftermath. The Millerite delusion, it is said, is not yet over. Their leaders are again advertising their meetings, and their hearers are again willing to be deceived. An old lady, says a Providence paper, was called on the other day by a neighbor and accosted with, Why, ma'am, I am surprised to see you here. How happens it that you did not go up last night when the world was destroyed? Well, I did start, said the old woman. But mercy on me, ma'am, I forgot my snuff box. Unlike the minor disappointment of 1843, the great disappointment was hard to come back from. This is the danger in predicting a specific date. When that date comes and goes, it's extremely awkward. Miller's followers were faced with a reckoning. It was hard to argue with the evidence that the world had not ended. Tens of thousands of his followers gave up on their beliefs. Some rejoined mainstream churches, and some just gave up on organized religion altogether. Hundreds more believed that the prophecy was correct, but that the date was just wrong. This group continued to wait for the fire they knew was just around the corner. But others reinterpreted the meaning of the prophecy. They maintained that something incredibly significant had occurred, but it just hadn't occurred on earth, but in the heavens. Miller himself was in the second group and continued to believe that the world was ending soon, but that he just must have gotten the math slightly wrong on when it would happen. Miller's own math ran out five years later, and he died in the autumn of 1849, in a world that was still stubbornly refusing to burn to ashes. You might wonder why people of almost all cultures and eras seem not only to be so intrigued by the idea of the world ending, but almost wishing for it. There are lots of complicated answers to this question. Historical, psychological, sociological. But I want to go metaphorical for a moment which is something that I often do when I'm trying to grasp something that I can't understand, which is pretty often. Let's imagine for a moment a huge hockey game with players on the ice and fans in the stand. Rather than ending after 60 minutes of play, the game goes on and on. There are amazing saves and, and great goals and so on, 
but eventually the game goes on long enough that the original players start retiring and are replaced by younger players. These players also grow old and are themselves replaced. Same thing is happening in the crowd. People are born with the game already well in progress, live their lives watching and die, having seen some amazing plays, but having no idea what the eventual outcome of the game would be. At some point, a terrible feeling would start to permeate the crowd and the players. Without an end, regardless of how well people played, regardless of how the fans cheered or booed, none of it could mean anything if it didn't end. Without an end, there could be no final reckoning regarding the final score of the game, and therefore the winner of the game. Without ending, what could any of it even mean? Every generation of players would no doubt hope that they would be the generation that would see the final ending, to hear that final whistle. Every fan would hope the same thing. But those players and fans would grow old and die without that knowledge, as would their children, and their children's children. It's easy to imagine that predictions and prophecies would start to show up, telling of miraculous players who would grace the ice with their superhuman abilities and forever tip the game in one direction or another, or of the time of the great buzzer when the game would end and the score would finally be tallied. It's sort of a horrifying thought in a way, as confronting absurdity often is. And maybe it helps me to understand the fascination people have and have always had with the end of the world. But unlike the world, this podcast episode does have an end, and I believe that we have just reached it.